0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Good afternoon, folks. Welcome to the Eastern Airlines Radio Show's Thursday broadcast of the REPA Radio Hour, brought to you by the Eastern Airlines Radio Show and the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. We share the stories and memories of the pilots who flew the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. My name is Neil Holland, retired Eastern captain and producer of the show, and we hope you will enjoy the stories we bring to you every Thursday at this time, and you'll enjoy, you will join in the conversation during the broadcast. Now, let's get the show in the air. Uh, repa 29, you're clear to start engines.
0: Hey,
2: Repa two niner, you're cleared for takeoff.
3: Roger, Repa twenty nine. We're on the on the roll, requesting a straight out departure.
2: That's approved, Repa two niner.
0: airline in the free world. If you've helped make us America's favorite way to fly, we thank you. If you haven't flown Eastern recently, give us a try. We'll show you we really do earn our wings every day.
4: Welcome back to another exciting REPA Radio Hour. Our stories range from the sounds of the aircraft you just heard starting up, or simply uh, from the mail wings to the Lockheed L-1011 TriStar, a.k.a. the Whisperliner. Liner. That's the one you just heard taken off. By the way, Eastern Airlines was the first to fly this three-engine, Rolls-Royce-powered widebody, affectionately known as the Whisper Liner by Eastern. As we like to tell our first-time listeners, you can listen in with your smartphone or go to our radio show provider at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Cap CapEddie at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time and click the start arrow. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m., you'll be given the message that the show has not begun yet better yet why not listen as many do and just tune into the show on your phone by calling 213-816-1611 this will put you on the producers board and all you have to do to share your comments or join in our discussion is to touch the number one on your smartphone's keyboard. That will tell the producer to unmute your phone's microphone, then just join in the fun. As we have mentioned in previous Reaper Radio show hours, we have added a new announcement to our Reaper Radio broadcast each week. When we become aware of our Eastern pilots and or their spouses' passage, to the west on their final flight. We are given the names of those deceased pilots. We will pay honor to these men and women who once flew the skies of this great airline. Now, Captain Neal, do you have any names uh, that we can announce this, some of our folks that have passed away?
1: Yes, thanks, Don. We received this notice during the past week from REPA uh, and Jim Holder. We just learned of the passing of Captain uh, Sam Bright. Sam passed away October 12th this year. I knew, I knew Sam personally, and we flew a few trips together. Our sincere sympathy to the Bright family. And also, Jim sent, I received this from Captain Holder this past week. We regret to advise you of the passing of Mrs. Udella States, widow of the late Captain Ned States of White Oak, Texas. Captain Don Blair was advised, has advised us, that Mrs. State passed away October 17th, 2020. Due to the the COVID-19 epidemic, no services are planned. An internment will take place in Logan, Kansas on October 21st. Now back to you, Don.
4: Well, thanks, Daniel. Thank you, Captain. And as we said in our previous shows, We will make available this time on the radio show whenever we have an announcement. Now, let's head up to Long Island, New York, where Captain Mike Scott is at the controls. Mike?
3: Yeah, thanks, Don. It's great the radio show honors those eastern pilots and spouses taking their final flight west during these broadcasts. We hope they come to us few and far between. We're departing from our normal format on the show today, during the last broadcast, it was brought up in conversation that the last flight of the first Boeing 727 aircraft was to Boeing to the Boeing Museum in Seattle, Washington. Since I had been a part of the last flight crew of this historical aircraft, we thought we would make the show about Boeing 727. That aircraft, after 48,060 landings, 64,495 hours, and 3 million passengers' uh, uh, miles, the first Boeing 727 ever to fly, uh, recently flew its last trip to Seattle's Museum of Flight. Thousands of pilots mourn its retirement, but the event also revives the fond memories for those who flew one. It's those pilots that will always remember protecting essential power, dropping their air stairs, and the sound of that really loud control trim wheel.
5: <laughs> so let's
3: wipe away the cobwebs and see what we can remember about the old tr- Trisaurus. And by the way, the first commercial for a Boeing 727 Whisperjet commercial was on TV in 1964. Mr. Producer, do you have
0: that? Check the set. Up, oh, three on. Speed break. You're oh. in one of Eastern's okay, whisper jets. Two, three, two, five, clear, the noisiest clear, section off. is the pilot's compartment. Yep. We keep the door closed. The left's by. In the cabin, it's quiet. The jets and the noise are behind you. <laughs> The Whisperjet climbs to smooth cruising altitude faster than any other jet airliner. It's the most relaxing plane there is. Fly Eastern. See how much better an airline can be.
3: Now, Harry, can you tell us some more on this?
2: Sure. Thank you, Captain Mike. The t tail Trio rear-mounted engines on the 727 was the first of its kind in many categories. It was the first airliner to have an auxiliary power unit, uh, an APU, completely powered flight controls, triple-slotted Kruger flaps, the first boring jetliner to undergo rigorous fatigue testing, and the first commercial airplane to break the 1,000 sales mark. It was the APU which gave this aircraft its freedom to fly to airports that didn't have ground power or starting equipment. Add in the fact that this aircraft had extraordinary performance on small runways and aft air stairs for passenger loading, unloading. And you have a commercial transport aircraft that could get in and out of smaller satellite airports that the other airliners couldn't fly into. Back to you, Captain Mike.
3: Yeah, thanks, Harry. I was fortunate enough to fly all three seats in the Boeing 727-100 and 200. Yes, there was an engineer on this aircraft. The side seat was a great place to learn about airplanes, uh, crew crew resource management, CRM, as they used to call it. There were some modifications, hush kits flying out there, but the aircraft fleet I flew generally had a max takeoff weight of 197,000 pounds, a range of 2,200 miles, plus or minus, could carry 60,000 pounds of fuel, depending on the optional fuel tanks, and could reach Mach 9.9 0.9, in a heartbeat. A great airplane to learn about Mach Tuck and Buffett. It burned so much fuel that the company encouraged the uh, 0.78 speed instead. The fleet was configured with a high density passenger seating so we were able to cram 173 passengers in. Uh Pratt and Whitney powered us in their slightly higher bypass ratio JT8D-17 engines. And to say they were loud was an understatement. They were they made the earth tremble, set off car alarms and triggered many noise abatement fines in airports that had sensitive areas. For sure. Okay. Well,
4: Mike, Mike um, it was because of this aircraft's ability and features that I'm sure you got to fly into some of the smallest places, only because you didn't have uh, you didn't have to uh, rely on ground services. You could perform out of a small or high-altitude airport with long, short runways, even with the highest elevations of any airport like La Paz, Bolivia, where the company had regular flights. Many companies using the 727 could accept Part 121 supplemental charter contracts for some weird destinations. Just a few of the unusual char- characters, charters included flying foreign tourists in and out of Angel Fire Airport to tour the Grand Canyon. The WWF wrestlers, back in the day when they were the WWF, in small towns in the Northwest, college and professional sports teams from coast to coast, hotshot shot fire, firefighters from Alaska airports and up and down the West Coast, and high-altitude mountain airports like La Paz, Bolivia.
3: Yes, and, Don, I can tell you the Boeing 727 was a forgiving, gladly did most anything you wanted demanded of it. But it didn't keep any secrets from us. It would tell you the next pilot if the previous pilot had been naughty, especially on takeoff. This aircraft had a retractable tail skid, which was equipped with an energy absorber consisting of a cylinder with a crushable honeycomb core. Often and, be, and because of the tailskid strike, it would be retained by a wire, and the little red area beneath the clip would be exposed to indicate the core had been crushed. There was also a removable paint on the tailskid so that you could easily t- uh, see the paint missing if an inspection was on the checklist for the walk around, which was required. Tail strikes usually happened somebody overrotated on takeoff often when they were heavily. Uh, in a heavy crosswind, or when the aircraft was empty and somebody wanted to launch a a, a rocket-like takeoff, there are also reports of it happening on landing. But you'd have to be pretty ba- a bad landing to do that. This tailskid is retractable, and is has its own warning light on the flight engineer's panel. If it didn't retract with the gear, there was a high penalty. I think 25 percent if you chose uh, to continue the flight. The cockpit has three seats, two full-size jump seats, so this was a choice of many commuters trying to catch a ride. There was four seats on the Boeing 727 that sat sideways <clears throat> excuse me. Three of them were toilets, and the other was the engineer's seat. I still have a dent in my knee from the first flight, uh, first officer slamming his seat backwards without warning me when I was a flight <laughs> engineer. And we can all attest to that one. Yeah, and I okay. learned a few, earned a few bruises on the trim wheel when the first officer in the first officer's seat when the captain decided to spin the, uh, the the trim like a power saw, and we were all familiar <laughs> with that one. Yeah. Put three pilots didn't in do the it cockpit the on, a, on a long flight, and they were <laughs> bound to come up with something to annoy each other. A few underwear changes were a result of another pilot snickering after they activated the stall warning stick shaker <laughs> test during the flight. If one of the other pilots was spending too much time trying to check his uh, inside of his eyelids, <laughs> often the engineer who felt the disrespect back he could uh, put a touch of aileron trim in while the auto- autopilot was on. When the <laughs> autopilot was on, the rudder trim worked, but the aileron trim was locked out. When you popped off the autopilot, it would it would put the aileron trim back in into position immediately in flight. In flight, excuse me. In flight, there was generally three speeds you needed to know in this aircraft: it was 140, yep. 150, and just below the barber pole. And if you lost your performance charts for landing, <laughs> you, could, you couldn't go wrong with 140 knots on short final, 3,000 pounds of fuel flow, and flaps 30. <laughs> Harry,
0: <laughs> hey,
2: thanks, Mike. Uh, it's good to hear that even. Uh, Professional airmen would not above hijinks on the job there. That's hard to imagine. <laughs> uh, Mike, I'm told when the sun was out, the overhead windows would bore burn holes into your skin. So most yeah. of these windows were filled with in route charts. If there's no sidewall heating in the cockpit, by the end of most flights, you had a sweater on and you could still see your breath. We had one aircraft that had a collapsed blocked heat ducts in the cockpit, and they refused to fix it so the pilots would end up there in heavy winter coats, scarves, and mittens, and wishing they could keep the cockpit door open for just a few moments of warmth. Of course, they would call the flight attendants in for hot coffee and keep the door open as long as possible. Mike?
3: Yeah, Harry, and one of the Boeing 727's quirk was that it required a slightly different touch to get a great landing. Contrary to thousands of previous hours in other airplanes, this aircraft required you to put the nose down just a little right before touchdown. If you didn't flatten out just a, mo- just, uh, just a moment, the heavy, the heavy aft end of the aircraft would touch down and make the landing for you. That's also a technique thing we can all talk about. It would even brake automatically and auto speed brakes if you asked it. I remember the first time I saw a pilot land with the auto brakes on medium instead of setting minimum. It was put us all forward in our seatbelts as we soon as, soon as the wheels started to spin. I never saw anyone use the MAX setting except in the simulator. The Boeing 727 was originally designed to have a nose wheel brakes as well, but most of these brakes had been removed. There was a few theories as to why, but as far as I could tell, never really needed them. But one of the deals for that was uh, the, the weight loss when they took them off was uh, 240 pounds, and actually those nose breaks, they didn't work until under 60 knots. So that's why they were taken off. Anyway, Mr. Producer.
1: Yeah, Uh I heard Jim Holder about to say something. Jim, what were you going to say about something we mentioned?
6: Uh. I think I must have forgotten. I had to be important, I wouldn't
1: try to, but I don't know if I got. It. Go ahead, Mike.
6: I mean well, you know, keep talking. I'm don't embarrass. Sh- yeah. Me. <laughs> I'm sure you
1: remember how during simulator training we got to ring out the airplane in every way possible.
0: Yeah, we so, love putting yeah. this
1: aircraft into every variable of dire emergency situations you could think of. The last emergency of my check ride training was always a classic three engine failure. With a glide ratio around 17 to one, this meant for every one mile above the ground, I could glide 17 miles forward. wasn't always pretty, but I made it to the airport runway every time in the simulator, that is. We all cringed when we had to practice procedures like the dreaded manual gear extension, heaving the controls around without hydraulics and shooting approaches on essential or emergency power in the real world we always had a long list of mel's which meant the minimum equipment list which always seemed to include the autopilot but this airplane always got the job done i only had two events which would be considered emergencies actually flying the airplane and weren't pilot-induced once at flight level 330, I remember going to Atlanta. I had a rapid decompression of sorts. The flight uh, the flight engineer said, "Captain, the cabin altitude has started to rise, and I'm trying to control it manually. But I think we had better start a descent unless I can get it back under control." Now, usually the cabin sets at about 8,000 feet, and uh, just like a uh, out of the simulator drill by an instructor, we followed the emergency checklist and, and got down to an altitude the overhead oxygen mass wouldn't drop down at each passenger seat. Phew, that was one for the books. My logbook, of course, told the story. The other one was a fuel problem, meaning not enough of. <laughs> when you gotta go, you gotta go. To your alternate i'm talking about at touchdown we had all fuel pumps in all fuel tanks with bright amber glowing lights i've told that story here before so we'll leave it for another discussion and i know jim i think you've talked about one that you had but when yeah. you when you don't let dispatch talk you into taking when you when you let them talk you into taking minimum fuel for the sake of adding more passengers you're in for trouble especially when you're going into Kennedy when marginal meteorological conditions existed which did when yes. I flew a flight and I think you had something yes. similar to that happen Jim
6: Yeah uh, could I jump in and talk about yeah. my
1: emergency descent that was not an
6: emergency descent but the one, you know how we practice all that and push oh, it over yeah. and I'll tell you the real quick story. Uh, they had massive thunderstorms across North Florida, and it was only about a thirty-mile spot uh, in, not out of the water either side, but on the land. And all of the airplanes going north and south out of Florida had to go through that like a narrow canyon. And they told us we were going to Orlando, and they said that uh, what we're going to have to do, we can keep you. You're going to have to keep you up at four thirty-five thousand feet. And there's going to be planes going underneath you, north and south and everything else. We can't descend you until you're about 50 miles north of Orlando. And they said, can you handle that? And I said, well, certainly we can handle that. You know, we're great gods of the air. And so they <laughs> told us to start our descent. And I'd already briefed the pilot, the passengers, that we're going to do an emergency descent, but it was the an emergency. It was going to be fun. And I got them all talked up. So we had the can- canopy all up uh, the cockpit. Uh, cabin, rather. I'll get this out in a minute. Going down to where we, you know, we couldn't take the cabin anymore till we started descending down. And so when we got about 50 miles out, they cleared us to 10,000 feet. And so we pushed it over and started down. And the cabin was coming down pretty fast, but it wasn't bothering the ears too much. And popped the speed brakes, and the whole thing, and we came down like a rock. And I mean, yeah. poor I had yeah. to add a little power to get to the runway. After that, you know, but the passengers—they thought it was great fun. You know, they, and of course, you could tell we had about a twenty-five or thirty-degree nose down. We were yeah. hauling behind it down. I know it. And uh, well, we, and we, it was we, fun, and the, you know, we made a good. We made a good thing out of it. It worked out great.
3: Well, you know, oh, only olives come out of the martinis. Yeah,
1: Yeah, you picked them off from the ceiling. But, you know, in my condition, I found out that the outflow valve had lodged, something had lodged out of the container lining, the cargo container lining, where those outflow valves, huge outflow valves were, and something had lodged in there. So it was not being able to be, you couldn't control it. The engineer couldn't control it. And that pressure, that cabin was coming right on up to meet 33,000 feet if it could. But at any rate, uh, that's when we started our descent. So, okay, Harry, how about it? You take over from here.
2: All right, Captain Neal. Uh, Folks, it's just easy to tell from listening to these old war horses that this airplane established a relationship with the pilots who flew her. She didn't have computers making decisions, uh, for better or for worse, and the controls felt like you were actually maneuvering an airplane. Stubborn, but once you learned to work with her and not against her, she'd do anything you asked. The Boeing 727 was simply trustworthy and solid. This refined, Amen. pure relationship created a connection between uh, the man or the woman and the machine, and I all learned to respect her. So, as the last 727s make their last landings over the next few years, let's lift a glass or two to the friendships she created, the lasting memories of the pilots who flew her, and the enormous number of hearing aids that she will require us to buy in the future. I can attest to the hearing aids. I used to work the ground with those things coming in, and they were loud. Yeah. Mr. Producer, do you have another Eastern WhisperJet commercial?
1: Yeah, we've heard this one. Actually, I switched the dates on it. That one that we heard earlier about how quiet it was, uh, was 1965. But uh, here's the one that, the first one that Eastern ran in 1964 was uh, this one that uh, we remember, the kids. And this was taken in Pittsburgh, I believe, actually filmed. Here it is. Check the set. Flat lever? Up. Three on. Speed break. Nope, I didn't oh, here it is. <laughs> I'll get it right. Check the set. Flat nope. whoops i i i guess i I signed the dates on the same one, but anyhow, uh it was the kids uh at, at in Pittsburgh and they were talking about the new whisper liner that was a great commercial, and uh we had some great commercials back in the day. Uh, I think all of ours were real class ones. But, um, well, that's uh, a tribute to the 727. But now we're going to pick uh, Mike, Captain Mike's brain because uh, he flew the last airplane, and it must have been exciting, Harry, to have that uh, uh, ask you to, to uh, fly in the crew. So uh, my question is, uh, on that last historical flight, how did you get that gig? And and that was brought up by Harry in an email to me. Yeah. He wanted to know how you got that gig and did it pay well? But uh, tell us how you did wind up flying that last flight, Mike.
3: Well, the the, the last I'll answer the last question first. It paid nothing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we we
3: did it just for the pleasure of it. Yeah, but uh, how I got that was uh you know in our operation we uh, we used a lot of temporary pilots and we had uh, one guy that was uh that we had he used for years and years he was a retired air force uh pilot and he flew corporate 72s for a long time and with us as a part-time person and he he got kind of old and he he was uh, uh he decided that he had enough and he wanted to retire. But in the meantime, I had another fellow. His name was Tim Powell. I'll mention his name. He was the captain on that flight. And he, was, uh, he went through all his normal stuff back in, uh, in yesteryear, going to uh, uh, all the different air colleges and all that to get their license, his licenses and all that. But he ended up with a job as a ground instructor at, uh, at Boeing. Because he lived up in uh, in Montana, and he, so he was close to Seattle and all that, and he, so he ended up commuting for that. And uh, he had uh, he from working in the uh, in the training department, being an instructor on uh, as a flight engineer instructor and several other things for ground school, he had a, he had a lot of connections with. Uh, with uh, all of the uh, the flight crew members uh, the test flight uh, flight test guys and all that and then eventually he made a uh uh turn, he started his own uh, flight simulator school up in Seattle for the 727 him and another one of the pilots and then he was uh, he went from there on to uh, of course he was working for uh, uh Air Alaska in between uh, I, I skipped that part he was uh worked for Air Alaska for a long time and then he was over at uh, Delta Airlines for uh, many many years I forgot just how many years he put in over there but he was number 1 on the 767 and he uh took an early retirement in in his 50s and it so he went into flying the uh all of the corporate 727s that were around which he flew about five or six different ones and he bugged me for years uh to uh to, uh, to come over and fly with us. So, uh, every time he got rechecked in the simulator, he'd send me another resume and give me a call every once in a while. But we still had this guy, Pete, that was, uh, uh, our air force guy. And, and uh, upon his retirement, uh, we started to use Tim, which was, uh, turned out to be a very good guy, sharp, everything. So, uh, we flew for years together and, uh, you know the the deal came. He he had was approached by Boeing a couple of times to move airplanes around, and he actually moved the. Uh, you might have seen the video. He had a, uh, a FedEx 727 that he moved from. I um, don't remember where it was actually at when it left, but they, he took it into uh, Merrill Field up in Alaska to donate to a uh, an a, uh, uh, mate, uh, aviation maintenance school. And I think the runway up there is about 4,800 feet. And uh, he brought it in there. And then uh, shortly after that, uh, he was approached to move the the number 1727 by the Boeing people. So, of course, he was flying with us. And uh, so when he mentioned this, I just kind of looked at him in the seat. We were flying. He mentioned it en route. And uh, I looked at him, and I says, well... I says, duh! I says, who's your your co-pilot and your uh, your flight engineer going to be? So I, I said, well, here we are. So I had my uh, flight engineer. His name was mentioned in the in the video, Ralph Pascal. And it's like the movie Strategic Air Command when Jimmy Stewart told uh, the general about what he thought about his flight engineer. And I says, well, he's probably the best in the business, you know. So uh, we ended up getting locked into that deal and uh, we spent a couple of trips going back and forth seeing that airplane up in uh, up in uh, pain field Uh, we saw it way back when it was just sitting there derelict and looking over the fence at it saying boy it'd be nice to fly that first airplane never knowing that we would ever get the chance to do it and uh, basically that's that's how we we uh, we actually got that gig there's a whole bunch more to the story but to the answers to those two questions were uh, no, we didn't. We all did it for free, and that's how I ended up meeting uh, Tim Powell, who gave me the opportunity, and Ralph Pascal the opportunity to fly with him on that. And I got, I could only imagine how many guys w- wished they could have gotten into that uh, and done that themselves. And uh, I considered myself very, very yeah. lucky for being a you know guy that barely got out of high school and. And it wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, so
1: (laughs) here I was. (laughs)
4: You
1: you guys got any questions, uh, Harry, uh, Don, Dorothy?
4: Uh, Mike, who else was on that last flight with you?
1: Well, we uh
3: we the the ferry permit that they, they got actually the uh the guy that uh, coordinated this whole thing from Boeing was a fellow by the name of Bob Bogash and I think I sent you guys the uh uh the his website that shows all the different projects mm-hmm. that he was on. Yeah. He basically was the main ramrod on that and there was another fellow by the name of Terry Howard who was the uh he worked in the museum and he was the chief uh, chief mechanic or, or uh, coordinator on that airplane all those years, also, and uh,
5: oh, so, so uh, we ended up. That...
3: We 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 uh, I was going to say we had a uh, we we ended up with a uh, with a special uh, permit to fly this airplane. It was a from the FAA special airworthiness permit ferry permit. It was BFR, of course, you know, and it was just good for that one flight from Payne. Taking off out of pain, going to Boeing Field. Now I'm trying to remember. Was there another part of that question that I that I that dropped out of my memory bank while we were talking there? Or,
5: well, what I was going to ask you is: Is that the area that you worked <clears throat> worked out of, or were there other members of the press on board with you in that area? Oh
3: yes, okay, yeah, I I I forgot the gist of that. No, the the ferry permit. That's where I was getting back to that. Uh, the ferry permit would only allow the uh, required crew, which basically was uh, Tim Powell, myself, and Ralph Pascal. So that was the three of us. And uh, and we did get uh, Bob Bogash to fly with us as he was considered a safety pilot because he's got his own airplane and he's a private pilot. Plus he was the coordinator on the thing. So they, the FAA allowed him to ride in the jump seat. So there was only four. The whole rest of the airplane was empty. Mm.
5: Mm. Uh, is that the flight that you normally uh the you know the people with you is that your normal flight crew
3: yes we uh we had flown for years together the the three of us you know on, uh, you know tim was a uh he was a temporary pilot with us but we uh we all flew he worked for us for i would say for at least four or five years before we did, we uh before we made that flight and huh. uh, fortunately that was uh uh, for, good for me because I was getting ready to to step out of the loop myself so when we had that flight on, on May, uh, I think it was May 3rd to 16, 2016 and uh, just a couple of months after that I retired from my own job at, uh, where I was working so and, and like uh, Captain Neal was saying when he didn't get the water can and he got jipped, and he was in a small airplane and they gave him the hose treatment uh... <laughs> We were we were fortunate enough to get the water cannon on departure, and we got the water cannon on arrival. However, there wasn't much that worked in the airplane, so uh, we worried about it. hadn't had electric on it for 25 years, and uh, we said, we don't want to hose the airplane down on departure. So what we did is we made it – we went past the they, – they shot the cannon out, and then uh, – Everything was wet in front of us. We taxied by it, and then we stopped in front of it, and then they took the picture from the front. It looks like it's going over the airplane. We didn't want the airplane wet because we didn't know what was going to happen with all the wiring and all (laughs) of that stuff in it. So (laughs)
0: we
3: go, uh, wet us down on the other end, but don't wet us down here. Yeah. (laughs)
5: Did the press take pictures of it?
3: Oh yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah. it's just a lot of the. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole thing on Bob Bogash's website. Plus, if you go on the, uh, on Google and put down the last flight, there's a whole lot of different videos that they have there. Some of them are long, some of them are short, and uh, some of them are just text and pictures and whatnot. But there's quite a few on there. They even got a picture of me and. Well, we have a couple pictures of us before we left. And then after we landed uh, with the whole crew and Bob Bogash uh, there, and uh, and also the picture, they got a picture of me signing the gear door because we all the right the the right gear door nose gear door we all, we all signed the inside there. Uh, so that's, uh, that's uh, our cool. signatures are that. still in the airplane. Yeah, very yeah, good.
5: That's uh, Mike, if you got hey. that video, we could put that on the uh, website and. Say go look at one of our hosts. <laughs> we
3: little... Well, it's not not much of me in there. I mean, on the on the on on the video, there's there's a little bit you can see me there. I'm not very photographic as, as far as I'm concerned, but uh, you get a lot of side shots and they saw a picture of me because I flew the airplane for about three or four minutes or whatever. It was only a 13-minute flight going down there because wow. we took off at of Payne Field on uh, runway 16 right. And we went out over, uh, 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 what do you call it, over Puget Sound at 2,500 feet and at 160 knots and kept it that way. And then we hooked a left-hand turn, dropped down to 1,500 and uh, into Elk through uh, by Elliott Bay by the Space Needle and then a right-hand turn into runway 13 right, uh, for the, uh to the museum we went in. Tim did a great job on the landing. He greased it in, and we, we all broke his chops about it, you know, because he's he was a good pilot no matter what. But uh, he let it roll, kept the nose off all the way down, and he let hardly even touch the brakes. And of course, the reverses we didn't have operative. The flaps were set at 15, and you couldn't move them. And the gear was uh, also pinned down. So, and and most of the equipment in the airplane, other than just VFR stuff, was uh, not working. So it was an interesting flight. So,
0: well,
4: I'm I, sure I it was. One the, the I one
3: different areas it. of it, but we have any specific questions, because uh, I have just general stuff I'm trying to remember here from the top of my head. You
1: were, uh, I'm sure, go ahead, Don.
4: That was just a short flight, were you like a tower en route, or? Did you
3: have a special permit? No, they, we got a special permit, and basically when we got the clearance, they everybody was in the loop. They knew what was going on with the number one airplane and all that, so everybody was ready. So they basically said, you can do whatever you want to do.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but we,
3: we set it up. You know, we made a right-hand turnout over the – of course, the FAA did require us to fly over the water for obvious reasons because they didn't want any bombs flying into the res, residential area in case it didn't work, you know. It's yeah. like the fire department told us at Payne Field. He says, you know, they they came and briefed us and said, anything that happens on this field, we got you covered. But after you leave the field, we're gonna be you'll be on your own. So the FAA, of course, <clears throat> they wanted us they wanted us out over the sound. So in case something happened, we were going to drink rather than go into a, a populated area. And then of course we went down the middle of uh, of uh, what do you call it the uh, uh, Elliot Bay and it was yeah. another photo session. We had a uh, I don't know if you guys know uh, remember uh, uh, an old race uh, 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 he he was in the Reno air races back in the early 60s and all that the guy by the name of Chuck Lifer.
0: Uh-huh.
3: He I used to fly know. the uh, P51. It was called uh, Miss Bardall.
0: Mhm.
3: I think you guys remember may the, remember that.
0: Remember he the, was the name doing of the, the air track. races? Yeah. He was
3: doing the, the, the Reno air races back when he was racing with Bob Hoover at Reno. And yeah, he was a... about my age, And but he, he he had a lot of money, and he had uh, was racing P-51s, and uh, he did the first uh, jet boats, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for, uh, it was called, you know, the Miss Bartol race boats that they put on the uh, jet-powered ones. Yeah. But him, he flew the chase plane, which was a Piper Aerostar, which Chase playing with with a fellow by the name of Jim Larson, he did all of the aerial photography for it. And uh, Chuck was flying with his son in uh, this Piper Aero store, like we said, and there's a lot of pictures of it in the the, uh, website. You'll see uh, on occasion you'll see him right at takeoff. We had to kind of wait before we put the throttles in to start to take off because he took off before us and he went he circled around and he wanted to make sure that he was flying right alongside of us when we took off, and he actually told us, okay, tell the tower you want you know that such on the counter whatever, starts to take off rolling and it worked out perfect. It was right alongside of us,
1: <laughs> mm, <I got laughs>
3: and that. then he followed us <laughs> from side to side taking pictures all the way uh, down through the sound and through the Elliott Bay and and. Uh, Pretty far down to the landing.
5: You mentioned that YouTube video. Um, now, did they have take all the flight crew members? Uh, did they show all those crew members as well, or not?
3: Well, we had a big, uh, had a awful lot of people at the departure. They, of course, they have it at the uh, Future of Flight, the uh, Boeing Museum up there. Uh, they have a an observatory deck, and every that was pretty full. Uh, with everybody getting ready to watch us. Plus, there was everybody around with cameras around the airport. And uh, when we got to uh, Boeing Field, there was uh, – we had a ton of United Airlines pilots and flight attendants and all and they were all – most all of them were wearing their uniforms. And they gave us we, – we all got roses. They gave us a dozen roses or whatever it was they gave us <laughs> as, as the flight crew. And uh, – So we got a real nice reception. Of course, they couldn't, uh, when we got in there, we tried to shut everything down, and uh, of course, they couldn't get the ground power unit to work. They wanted to keep some power on the airplane, so we sat there for a while and left the one engine running until they finally got the power on, and uh, then it was a whole, uh, you know, ceremony. uh, They had a nice, uh, the president of Boeing was there, and he gave a presentation that took about uh, 45 minutes or so inside, and Uh, Very nice, the whole thing uh, I don't know what I'm leaving I could talk about it like crazy I I keep hopping around here
1: I'm going to ask the three of us That have flown that airplane The 727, both 100 and 200 series Uh, Mike, you and uh, Jim Holder And myself uh, Jim, you've got I think I heard you say 14,000, 15,000 hours In it, and I have about 8,000 hours in the airplane I'm, I'm I'm about
3: with Jim I'm about with because I cause that's okay. about what I got about well, 15 minutes. With all it.
1: those hours and all that time, I want to ask all three of us to uh tell your favorite quick story of that airplane uh of, of flying it. What 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 story do you remember that uh, really was a story of, about the airplane and you? Type of.
3: Well, thing? that could encompass pretty much all of the flights. <laughs> But, I mean, you, you're talking about uh, something that was uh, a sketchy or just a, a plain regular yeah, flight?
1: something that uh, maybe the airplane would take the challenge. I'm thinking about my own situation. Maybe I'll start it off and you guys think of something maybe similar to it that uh, you remember uh, about it. But uh, we took off out of Miami, going to New York, of course, uh, uh, and out over a control 1150 and, and we were at 37,000 feet, I believe, and uh, full passenger load. And we were in the airplane with the smaller engines. And and uh, we were being beat to pieces with uh, severe turbulence. I mean, it was rough. And uh, we knew that at altitude it was going to be choppy. They call it choppy air. But this was severe choppy. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a Pan Am flight that was right above us that uh, was up at 41,000 feet. Now, that airplane was designed in max altitude of the 727 was 410, four zero, 41,000 000 feet. And uh, Pan Am says, come on up here, Eastern. We're at 41, and it's smooth as a baby's behind. And <laughs> so here we are. Fighting it out at 37,000 feet. And I told the the first officer, I said, tell center, we want 41,000 feet. And he looked at me as if, Ukraine, we're not going to make 41,000 feet. And I said, just go ahead and tell him we want 41. So here we are starting our climb. And we climbed 38,000, 39,000. Got to 40,000, and that airplane wouldn't budge. One inch over. And I told the first officer, tell him we want to block from 39 to 41.
0: <laughs> yeah. Get a little And we going were out, out of there.
1: the turbulence at 40,000 feet, but we couldn't go one inch higher. That's one of my favorite remembrances of that airplane. It yeah. it did what I asked it to do almost, but it tried yeah. like the little little engine that could, you know, think it could. I know I can't. I know I can't. Can. Now well, we, you got one to top that.
3: Well, we got uh, uh, Speaking of altitudes, uh, they uh, our airplane the last one that I flew was it was uh, an old. Uh, it was uh, actually it was the second from the last 100 that was built, and they built about 570 of them. And it was originally a CP Air airplane, then it ended up with Revlon, the uh, cosmetic company, before it ended up with our company. But as uh, it was modified so that we had the, of course, the airplane had, for one thing, it had uh, a 2,800-gallon auxiliary fuel tank system with eight tanks down in the belly. That's why we did all that international flying across the pond and all that stuff. But uh, it had winglets on it, we had the flap group mod, and we had the Dash 217C engines on on the 1 and 3 position, which are the MD-80 engines. And they put out uh, 20,000 pounds of thrust apiece.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, we took off out of Boeing Field, not had, uh, didn't have anything to do with the, the other uh, United airplane. They, we were going back to, we didn't have a lot of fuel on the airplane, and we only had a couple of passengers. No aux fuel or anything, and we... Uh, we took off out of Boeing Field, and it took us 17 minutes straight to 41,000. <laughs> <laughs> and that thing was just w- was rocking and rolling. Let me tell you, and, yeah. I said, it, and we had to push the nose over at 41,000.
0: <laughs> oh, it wanted to
3: keep right on going. <laughs> yeah. So I says this old this old baby. I just wanted to pat it on a, on his side, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was just 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 beautiful the way it went up there, right up there, going at eight o, right at forty one thousand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jim, how
1: about you, Jim Holder?
6: Well, okay, I got a I got a forty one 2 too, uh, coming from at Houston to Atlanta, one cold winter day without a cloud in the sky and. Uh, we said, let's try 410, and they hear us up to it, and our little baby just went, I don't know if that's smooth as silk. We weren't rough or anything like that. The weather chop was smooth as silk, and we stayed up there, we had about 150 mile an hour tailwind, so we had to start down real early. We didn't know how much trouble we were going to be in get, trying to get that thing back down to around 35,000. But she went up, she cruised like a beauty, and she came down, and that was my 410 story. But I do have, and I've told it before on the radio show, about the 727s, when they first came along, there was uh, a lot of people trying to check out on the 727 that had never flown jets at all in the military or anything else. Uh, maybe they had flown the DC-8s or something, but it's a different bird from the DC-8s and Boeing yeah. 720s and all those, and a lot of guys just didn't quite get it right, and it had a history of some uh, very unfortunate crashes. And not a one of them had anything to do with airplanes, other than the fact it was a different type airplane. But yeah. that, when that was all going on, we had seat swapping. The as you remember, sometimes yeah. you'd be the, cop- or the first officer and sometimes you'd be the second officer. And you'd swap back and forth. And the captain of course was always the captain in the left seat. And we flew a little trip from Atlanta over to St. Louis and back. And this is right when, you know, when all this was happening over about an 18-month period uh, Maybe a little more than 18 months, but it was all closely connected, these, these crashes. And uh, and I was a second officer, a flight engineer, and the captain and the first officer went in to you know, get the paperwork and talk and all that. So I stayed on the airplane like I supposed to, running around the airplane after we landed. Everything looked okay, and I got back in my seat. And and this was before they had jetways in St. Louis, and the passengers was coming out and coming up the— stairs and i'm just sitting there with the door opening you know and sitting sideways as uh mike talks about and uh they kept coming up and coming up and finally this one one lady i'd say she must have been in her late 50s or early 60s or something she made a left turn and came in the cockpit and of course i'm looked up you know i'm full of public relations i know how to treat the people great you're know, making a joke about it And uh, she said, young fella, what kind of airplane is this I'm flying on? And I said, ma'am, it's Eastern's new Whisper Jet. And she looked at me and smiled. She said, well, good. You couldn't get me on the 727. And I said, well, have a nice flight. <laughs> <laughs> and I often wondered if she's back there and sitting back there and talking about this new whisper jet and all that kind of stuff. And I wouldn't fly on a seven twenty seven and maybe somebody in a moment, what do you think you're doing? You're sitting on one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's a that true story. Jim Holder didn't have to do didn't improve it at all. Not one bit. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, Neil,
2: I got a question for you guys Yeah You you, uh, you three, uh, 727 pilots Did any of you ever activate that, that tail skid on one? If you wanted to no. If you don't, that's okay too No, no,
6: no, no I never did no. I, I didn't either, but I got a little tail skid story If you want to hear if you got time for it Yeah It's real quick When they were brand-spacking new airplanes, they're out there flying around with 102, which later became an Eastern airplane, our first airplane. And they went up with uh, all these photographers, and they had the Cascades in sight in the background. It was a beautiful picture. And uh, that 727 is flying along with that first paint job. And right there, if you look real close, the tail skid's sticking down. It sure is. I've and seen it, it ain't supposed to be sticking down. And what no, happens it when sure you take is. off and you you, rack, you raise the landing gear lever up and the gear comes up and all that, and one other thing happens too. The tail skids retracted, but it's the yeah. last thing to do it. So somebody on that flight, they snatch the gear up, and then immediately went back to off, and the tail skid was trapped in this extended position.
5: So, yeah, more, and so yeah. that
6: picture went out, and many people saw it. But uh, yeah. I think they ran out of ran another flight up, about maybe a couple of weeks later, and took another picture.
3: Well, uh, as you guys may remember, the the tail skids on the one hundred and the two hundred were somewhat different. The uh, one hundred was an electric electric, and it went up uh, with flap position. And mm-hmm. then the and the, the two hundred, it was hydraulic went up with the uh, with the gear
6: handle like you said with the uh, mm. on the but you had to put the, the gear handle back to you had to leave the gear handle up until the, the gear retracted and the lights you know went out and then the tail yeah. skid came up and it had a tail skid light <laughs> tail skid light on the engineer's belt right yeah they applied around with not only the tail skid down but the, light the lights on there right in front of the <laughs> flight engineer <laughs> Well, right, all I had exactly. to do was just throw the gear up, and I mean the gear lever up, and it retracted. They could go back to it, but they didn't see it somehow.
3: <laughs> well, you could, as an engineer, we all know because we all sat sideways. It, it, I didn't yeah. stay there very long. I was less than a year doing it, but i I found out that I could have a lot of fun with the guys in the front, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I found that one airplane that if I, the guys would be sitting there starting to fall asleep. And I, I could take the uh, the circuit breaker for the for any for the number two I used to use the uh, number two EPER. and if you pull the circuit breaker out and just try to start to reset it, but you didn't really reset it, you could toggle it a little bit, you could get the eber indicated to spin around like a propeller, and I wanted to see just how long it would take before anybody noticed that
6: and nobody I wanna, did yeah, so I, I finally
3: had to tap him on the shoulder and say what's going on with number two
6: engine <laughs> <laughs> no I, I anyway, I we best.
3: could go I, on I with that
6: stuff
3: I come from the maintenance end so I knew what I could get away with
1: <laughs> I know you guys yeah. remember sitting in, in the engineer's seat you enjoyed opening up that little lid your desk had a little hinge there and you could raise it up and get all your performance manuals and all that stuff that was in your desk there. But uh, one of the fun things to do is uh, uh, open up that, that flight, that, that uh, aircraft manual and uh, performance manual, and there would be uh, someone had Playboy. changed all the pages out, and there was Playboy. <laughs> all <laughs> yeah, the, all yeah. the pinups for last <laughs> month. <laughs>
6: yeah, And the kick come out and fly a trip And they spend half an hour Going around the carpet looking for something like that Tearing <laughs> it up <laughs> uh, And then they probably take it home like, with a look uh, at it
1: We can go mm-hmm. on and on and on With this But uh, all things come to an end here So uh I'm going to ask Dorothy. Dorothy, you got anything about uh, what's coming up here before we sign off? Uh,
5: well, we have for our Monday show. Don't forget, we get Halloween this year in the Bermuda Triangle. So that's going to be our Monday show. And uh, don't forget to mention to Chuck Albright, too, that it's going to be his birthday on Monday. So
0: okay,
6: very good. going to be a good, good day.
5: And we have our music program uh, in history that will be following that the following Monday, and of course we always have Reaper. And coming up on uh, November ninth, we're going to have a, to honor our veterans and a tribute to the World War One and Two waves. So we have quite a few on our yeah. website that we have outlined for our upcoming programs that people can go to and take a look at. Back to you, Neil.
1: Well, I'm going to turn it over. I'm sorry to take you apart there. Great show, great airplane, and great stories we just shared about the 727, one of my favorite airplanes I ever flew. And, uh, Don, uh, you take it from here?
4: Sure, sure, sure will. Thanks, everybody. Well, we'll see you again next week, same time when we continue our trip through the pages of Repartee as printed in the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association and other publications. And by the way, if you haven't visited our website, it's www.ealradioshow.com. That's where you'll find many more Great Eastern stories and memories. So I say goodbye, and so from all of the hosts... And our producer, Captain Neil Holland. This is Don Gagnon saying so long, Eastern. We love you, Eastern.
1: We love you, Eastern. We love you, Eastern. Love you, Eastern. Thank you, Hello. guys. We do. Great we show. have to love her.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Mike,
1: Great stories. Mike, great
3: job. Yeah, we Thank got you. more coming.
1: <laughs> yeah, all right. Very good. Here we go. Let's get Merle. Sing it out loud.
0: Don't take that airplane ride but you locked me out of your mind and left me standing here behind. Silver wings shining in the sunlight, roaring engine, headed somewhere in Taking you away And leaving me lonely Silver wings Slowly fading out of sight Tonight, guys okay
3: check your central central.
1: Day, okay. central power <laughs>